You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Michael Schwarz. Uh, he's the creator of a documentary called Look Who's Driving about automatic cars or automatic driving or self-driving cars. Uh, it's hosted on Nova, which is part of the PBS website. So the URL to watch it, which we'll bring up a couple times, should be uh, pbs.org slash Nova. And again, it's called Look Who's Driving. So Michael, welcome. How are you doing? Thanks very much. Doing fine. And I appreciate your interest in the show. Yeah, I think uh, self-driving cars are interesting to a lot of people. So what what uh, spurred your interest in creating this documentary? You know, my interest is actually spurred because we did a, um, a, a series of films a few years ago about the history of Silicon Valley. And as part of that project, we followed a couple of startups uh, that were taking part in a, a kind of a boot camp that was run by a, a group called Y Combinator in Silicon Valley. And uh, one of the companies was trying to develop self-driving cars. And it was um, led by a guy who'd been involved in a couple of other companies beforehand. And uh, we filmed he and, and two colleagues of his that they tried to retrofit an Audi A4 with uh, basically a self-driving package. His goal at the time was to get the car to drive from San Francisco to Mountain View um, without human intervention. And he succeeded in that. Uh, he raised some money, got the company started. The company was called Cruise. Um, by the time we were late in the editing stage, Cruise had grown from about three people to somewhere around 250 or so. Uh, and they were acquired by General Motors for about a billion dollars. Uh, the exact price, you know, varies according to who you ask, but very big sale to General Motors, and they became the spearhead and the focal point for all of GM's self-driving car efforts. And so, you know, getting to see Kyle Vogt was the name of the founder. Getting to see Kyle and his colleagues go from really three people to several hundred, and you know, zero valuation to uh, something north, you know, something in the in the area of a billion. Um, you know, made me think that there's a bigger story here and that we should look into it in more depth in a separate film. Um, and we were particularly interested in the technological and engineering challenges that needed to be overcome to make self-driving cars safe. Because it seemed to me that until they could uh, meet that threshold, there wasn't really much point in having them. Um, you know, and, and Nova... Uh, became a partner in that we received funding for the show from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation uh, in New York, which has supported a lot of our work over the last uh, nearly 25 years. And uh, Nova came in as a 
you know, as a uh, as a partner, a co-producer, and a funder, and of course a distributor. So that that's how we got off the ground. Yeah, and just from what you've said so far, you know, I have questions about retrofitting existing cars versus having to do a new car that has all the you know autonomous driving in it. So that's my first question. Um, well, cruise abandonment. What's what's harder, retrofitting or uh, new build? Well, you know, Cruz abandoned the idea of retrofitting. And, you know, one of the reasons they partnered with GM was because GM had the manufacturing capability to, to, to make a car that is designed to be self-drive from the start. Um, you know, one of the companies in the program is a company called Zooks out here uh, in the Bay Area. And they're really developing, you know, what most people would understand as a robo-taxi for use in urban areas. And, and that, you know, a big part of, of their uh, business plan is really to design the car. Well, I, I would hesitate even to call it a car. Is to, to design a, you know, quote-unquote transportation platform, um, you know, that has no controls. And that's, just, you know, that's got the people facing each other, carriage, what they call carriage seating. And then where the vehicle is, you know, conceived from the ground up is something that's going to be controlled by computers. So, you know, my my sense is that uh, is that that's the that's the way it's going to head eventually. I think for the time being, there's a lot of retrofitting going on because it's the easiest way to test, you know, whether whether the software and hardware systems can work together. But but I think eventually. Uh, you know these these um, capabilities are going to be built in, and I also think that it's very unlikely that these vehicles are going to be sold anytime soon to individual consumers. You know, test, Tesla notwithstanding, that's a whole other another another issue. But I think most of the companies, you know, see the benefits of self-driving as being that cars can stay on the road, maybe not quite 24 hours a day, but but you know, most of the day. And one of the biggest uh, sources of waste right now that we have with individual cars is that most of them spend about 95% of their lives parked somewhere. And we only use them, you know, four to 5% of the time uh, they're in motion. The rest of the time they're in our driveways or garages or parking lots at work. And, and um, it's a very inefficient way to build a transportation system. Yeah, I didn't realize the usage percentage was so low. Huh. So you yeah, said about 95%? Um, 95% unused. Yeah. Well, in a way, idle. in a way that's, you know, for the number of cars out there, that's a good thing. If they were 100% utilized or even 50% with the number of existing cars, that would be horrible, but we wouldn't need nearly that much capacity is my guess. So a lot fewer cars yeah, available, much more of the time is better. That's why nobody knows whether, whether these, you know, self-driving cars are going to increase Congestion or reduce it. I think you can find people on either side of that question. Oh, is that really a concern? I mean, why would um, why would they increase congestion? Because I mean, people are not going to will they make, will they make, will make they use easier. cars more often? Yeah, yeah. The more the the more the easier you make transportation, the more people tend to use it. So there there are scenarios that you know that came out showing that uh, usage could actually increase congestion could increase. You know, I think the pollution question is different because more and more people see these becoming all electric at some point. But but uh, there's still debate about, you know, the, what the actual long-term impact would be. 
has there been any uh, study of Uber and Lyft and what that's done? You know, has it made people take more trips versus their their normal? It's dramatically increased congestion in places like San Francisco. There have been studies, and the studies show a very bad impact on congestion. A lot more cars oh. roaming around. Yes. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, I hate what when there's uh, those, those those counterintuitive things that happen, you know, and those uh, and those trade-offs. But you know, I guess they're there. Yes, they are. <laughs> so, um, you know, the ro- the rosier scenario, of course, is that there'll be more ride sharing, and there'll be more efficient transportation. There'll be less congestion. There'll be less pollution. And it's it's, it's possible that could happen. It's just that we don't know. And you know, so often with the introduction of any new technology, there are unintended consequences. And, and um, you don't know till you do it. Well, maybe the sweet spot then would be private ownership, but a high degree of autonomy in the driving or autonomous driving, because then, uh, I don't know, it would be easier for people, but they still would have to get in their car and go go somewhere. So maybe that would prevent them from uh, using the car a lot more. It was just easier to use and therefore autonomous. They could take longer trips, but um, I don't know. I don't know what the implication would be, but I guess no one knows. Nobody does right now. What about the uh, the safety standard? You know, when we say, um, oh, autonomous cars will be more safe, what does that mean? I mean, it seems like the perspective is is that any accidents involving autonomous vehicles would instantly demonize them to the point where they wouldn't want to be used. So the standard seems to be a lot more, the bar is a lot higher for them versus human drivers. I think that's true. I think there's a general concern about handing over control to computers. Um, you know, at the same time, we do it every time we get in an airplane. Nobody worries a whole lot that you know some you know that, that computerized system by and large is flying that airplane most of the time. Um, you know, the safety the, the, the safety issue is a crucial one because the industry likes to say correctly that there are. You know, at the moment, somewhere between you know, 35 and 40,000 deaths per year in this country, and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 million, 1.3 million around the world. And, and that autonomous cars don't get drunk, they don't get distracted, they don't get drowsy. And, and in theory, they could eliminate, you know, some, if not all, of those deaths. But the challenge is, though, that even though there are all of those fatalities. The, the fact is that human drivers only experience a fatality once every 100 million miles. And the reason there are so many is that we collectively drive so many miles. But to get an autonomous car to be able to drive 100 million miles without a fatality is a very, very high bar, and uh, nobody is close to that at the moment. But what does that 100 million mile mark do to an individual autonomous car's track record? Again, if, is, it, is it the perception that if, um, again, there's, there's even a few accidents that involve autonomous cars that people would say, oh, it's not working, forget it. I mean, what do you think would happen? You know, most polls show that most members of the public, as many as 75%, uh, are wary of, of getting into these vehicles. They're scared of them. So... You know, any single accident uh, in, in which there's a fatality involving a self-driving car, like the one in Uber, Uber, the Uber crash in Tempe, Arizona, um, that that stokes those public fears. Um, but the issue is that these cars haven't been on the road long enough to, you know, 
to, to have a track record where you can even gauge that level of performance. So a lot of it's done in simulation and on test tracks. And, you know, while they're getting more and more mileage on the road, they're, they're driving in, you know, limited kind of controlled conditions. I shouldn't say controlled because there's, you know, many of them are driving in places like San Francisco, but they're, um, they're sort of circumscribed conditions in which they're driving routes they know, you know, and they're being tested and they can't just go from, you know, any random place to any other random place. Uh, they're often being driven in good weather, um, you know, in good road conditions. So uh, we just don't, we just don't have the data yet to know, um, you know, if you ask how are we going to know when these cars meet that standard, it's very hard to get a clear answer on, on how we know when they're, you know, safe enough. So as a society, we're going to have to make a decision about the trade-offs and, you know, yeah. what, what level of risk to, you know, we're willing to accept. Well, you know, every time we get what, in a vehicle, we, we, we accept some level of risk. So the question is, right, right. how much? Well, what level of autonomy is actually in use? You know, people, I'm sure there's a lot of people that say, oh, I've heard about self-driving cars, and then there's other people that believe that they're already on the road driving all over the place. But what's the reality of it? Uh, the reality is there aren't self-driving cars on the road yet. Uh, there are some that are, that are being tested, but, but, you know, cars like the Tesla with autopilot, um, you know, they're, they're what's known in the industry as level two autonomy, which means that they can you know, automatically control two driving functions. You know, in, in, in the case of the Tesla, you know, it's, it's steering, you know, staying in a lane, and it's speed control, maintaining a safe distance behind the vehicle in, in front of it. Um, but the human driver is still responsible for ensuring the safety of the car. So one of the issues that has come up with those systems is that people develop a false sense of confidence or security because they work pretty well, but they don't work perfectly. And for instance, they're not very good at seeing vehicles that cross their path. They're not very good at seeing stationary objects in front of them. And when somebody fails to pay attention, even for five or, or 10 seconds, that can lead to fatalities. And, and, and it's done that. Um, companies like um, Waymo and Zooks and Cruise and, and, and many others are, are, are therefore trying to leapfrog the step where there's any, you know, human responsibility at all and get to the point where the car itself can be fully responsible, you know, for not causing any accidents because all, all of the, most of the research shows that it's very difficult to uh, be, uh, you know, sort of somewhat relaxed and super vigilant at the same time. I mean, I think anybody who's gotten in a car and driven it knows that, there, you know, when a dangerous situation arises, it happens very fast. And even if you're really paying attention, it can be difficult to avoid it. So if you're in a car in which you think the car is handling everything and suddenly the car isn't handling it well, it's sort of completely counterintuitive to think that somebody's going to be immediately able to, you know, go from that somewhat relaxed and inattentive state to, you know, being hypervigilant and, and able to take really sudden evasive action in a safe way. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. I didn't think about that. That's true. If you're uh, <clears throat> sitting there letting the car drive and relaxing, you're not probably likely to react well, even if you could react quickly, because you weren't, yeah, uh, yeah. you didn't have a history of what was going on a second before. 
Yeah, you sort of, it's hard to be both a passenger and a driver at the same time. You sort of need to be one or the other. And if you're a passenger, then it's difficult to suddenly be expected to take over the driving role. Mm. And that's what so it may have to in, be, uh, level two cars. So it may have to be total autonomy or not. That's what many people Possibly. believe, yes. Yeah. Well, it just seems like a lot scarier of a thing to be in a car with no steering wheel and no way for me to control it. It's totally controlled by computer. I guess if I accept it, then I will relax and that's that. But uh, I don't know. It just seems like a much harder sell. You know, it's a loss of independence and ownership and all the other things. Yeah. And psychologically, that's the barrier the industry needs to overcome. I mean, in theory, you know, uh, these vehicles have 360-degree sensors and they've got, you know, different kinds of sensors. So they are seeing at all times everything that's happening around the car. Um you know, and, and they're uh, one of the things we're showing in the program is you know some tests that are being done by a, a group of Stanford that that are trying to figure out how to use computers to you know make sure that a car can perform at the limits of its capabilities in terms of maintaining tire traction with the road so that if it needs to take evasive action, it could do so safely. And 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 in some ways, computers are you know and and they, what they do is they basically study race car driver behavior, and and then kind of translate that into into you know computer instructions that control the car, um, and you know the, the the great thing about that is that once you have the code right, it can be translated to a fleet of vehicles, you know fairly quickly, and they all have that capability, you know in, in a way that would far exceed what any sort of ordinary human driver to do um so um you know but but, get, but getting there is, is 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 difficult and and in order to trust the cars we need to see that they perform reliably under all cases and the issue is you know what, what's what's kind of known in the industry is as edge cases that you know just people do crazy things if everybody followed the rules it would be you know reasonably simple to to program cars to, um, you know, to behave in a way that's safe. The, the challenge is when people sort of jump into the street in the middle of two parked cars or people drive the wrong way down a street or there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens. It's very hard to anticipate and, and, and therefore it's very hard to train the cars to know how to respond to that. Well, um, one scenario I've thought of is, you know, let's say autonomous vehicles start and they're 50% safer than human drivers. And then eventually, uh, I, I would think that the states and the government would legislate that you're not allowed to drive a car except in emergencies, and you have to use autonomous vehicles. And I could see a, ch a complete changeover at some point if that was the case. Do you think that's possible? Uh, it could, you know, it could, could be possible, but I think it, we're, we're, we're decades away from being able to do that. Okay. And I, I think a lot of people are going to want to continue to drive their cars. Um, so, you know, especially in, in a country like this where, um, you know, there's, there's such uh, weight placed on individual rights. Um, you know, I think taking people, it's going to be very hard for governments to take people's cars away. So I, I think that transition would be a very long one um, mm. if it's ever going to happen. So what other... Um insights have you gotten from making the film that you didn't have before you made the film? <laughs> Gosh. Uh, I, 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 it's a, so many different ways to answer that question. Um, 
you know, I, I think it's hard not to be impressed by the a kind of passion and dedication of people who are trying to um, make these cars safe. It's a huge technological and engineering challenge. Um, and there are a lot of incredibly smart people uh, working on the problem. Uh, many of them, you know, interestingly enough, got their start in some uh, competitions that were sponsored by the Department of Defense, uh, which, you know, the, this whole industry in some ways goes goes back, to, well, it goes back even longer than, than what's known as the DARPA Grand Challenges. But, um, you know, back, back in the middle of the last century, people were thinking that self-driving cars were going to be kind of guided by mag tracks that were going to be buried in highways. So the, the idea, you know, there's been, a, there's been a desire for a long time to create these sorts of systems, um, and it's been a challenge to figure out how. Uh, the real impetus came um, in the early uh, 2004 and five, and then 2007 when the Defense Department announced competitions to develop self-driving cars because they wanted to figure out a way to keep soldiers safe on the battlefield. And so they went to, you know, universities and other research centers and, and basically they initially had a million dollar prize and um, for, you know, any car that could sort of autonomously finish a, a course and nobody, nobody managed to do it. And then the next year they doubled the prize and people did get better. And then in 2007, they sort of, they, they did what they, they launched what they called an urban challenge. Um, where they have, you know, stoplights and more of the kinds of intersections. And the first two courses were in the desert. The urban challenge was on a course that, you know, more resembled an urban, an urban environment. And a lot of the people in the industry today participated in those races back in 2004, five, and seven. So the government really, you know, seeded a, a lot of the work that's going on now. And a lot of the talent emerged from that crucible. So, um, you know, I, I think what's impressed me is, is, is one, the importance of the role that the government played in, in, in launching this new industry, um, to the, you know, the, the, the kind of sort of brilliance and fortitude that a lot of the people in the field, you know, you know have and, and their tenacity at sort of chipping away at these problems. There's been incredible progress made, but at the same time, getting to the point where these cars can be safer than human drivers, that's still, I think, we're still quite a ways from that. Um, and, uh, you know, will it happen? I think it, it, it certainly could, uh, but, but I think it's going to be a while before it does. Um, seems to me what's most likely is that, you know, and I'm, I'm really just echoing here, you know, what we've learned from, from experts in the field, but, um, you know, trucking is one area where, you know, we, we may see sort of early adoption because, um, you know, highway driving is actually much more simple than urban or suburban driving, you know, on-ramp to off-ramp. Um, you know, that's something we're pretty good at already. Um, and, and so, you know, that could make sense, you know, where you've got long-haul truckers that, you know, can easily get drowsy. Um, you know, it's going to be easier to do that than to than to figure out how to navigate the streets of Manhattan or Boston or San Francisco or Chicago or wherever you want to, L.A. You know, wherever you know wherever you want to talk about. Um, you know, and and then I think in environments where 
cars don't need to go more than 20 or 25 miles an hour, and there's not a lot of traffic um, and not a lot of surprises, they, they could also make sense. You know, and, and there we're talking about industrial parks or college campuses or retirement communities, you know, or airports, you know, where shuttles function. You know, that could be another place where, where we start to see them sooner rather than later. But, um, you know, to go anywhere, anytime, um, fully autonomous vehicle, that, that's, you know, I suspect further away. But, you know, the, the, the companies like the, some of these companies are, you know, they're, they're getting closer every day. So, you know, the question is, uh, as, as you asked earlier, you know, if one of these vehicles is involved in an accident, where's our tolerance level? You know, do we, do we need to get to the point where there are no deaths before we say, okay, these are an overall benefit to society, or, or if they can get us from 35,000 annual deaths to 25,000, is that good enough? So are we willing to accept that right. because 10,000 lives have been saved? So, All right, well, question here. Um, on the fully autonomous vehicles like Waymo, et cetera, there's no steering wheel, no anything. Um, what are some of the beneficial trade-offs that we can get in terms of safety because of no steering wheel, no need for a driver to sit in a certain seat and location? I would think they could use a lot of that stuff to their advantage to make a much safer vehicle. Well, you know, eventually, I mean, right now they do have steering wheels because most of them have safety drivers who can take over in event of emergency. So, you know, at the moment, you know, the Waymo's driving, you know, Pacificas and, um, um, uh, you know, but most companies, I don't, I don't know of any company that's right now testing without, without a steering wheel at all, although I think most of them want to get to the point where there are no, you know, driver controls, where there's no steering wheel, no no brake, no accelerator, and so on. You know, I think the advantages are they can start thinking of safety within the compartment differently and, you know, how airbags are deployed differently, how the, how the you know, passenger compartment would, would collapse differently. And, and uh, you know, I, I think... You know, companies like Zooks, which are, you know, rethinking what the vehicle is or are, you know, are, are really focusing on some of those questions. Yes, they do think there's a, there's a big safety. You know, that, that Zooks has, we interviewed somebody from Zooks whose title is Safety Innovation Officer, a guy named Mark Rosekind, who used to work for the, you know, uh, for NHTSA, the government agency that's responsible for highway safety. Um so, you know, his job is really to think about precisely, you know, what, what are the answers to, to, to the question you, you've asked. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered if anything was apparent or jumps out as, uh, you know, a nice trade-off now that you don't have that stuff in the car. But we're not there yet. So, Well, you know, you're not going to slam your chest into the steering wheel, right, for a start. Yep. Um, and you could probably begin making the windscreens different so there's less likelihood of... Uh, you know, a head smashing into glass. And, um, you know, I honestly don't know the answer to the question, but, but I know that they're trying to figure it out. Very good. So what, um, what do you think are some of the, from maybe from comments from viewers, like what are the things that people find most interesting about the documentary? Uh, you know, we, 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 we mainly hear from people who say nice things to us. <laughs> well, good. So, um, you know, WGBH would be getting more of the viewer comments. I haven't seen many viewer comments yet, but uh, you know, so so the, the the answer that I can give to that question is mainly anecdotal, mainly from friends and colleagues. You know, who 
the ones who've written to us, you know, think it was a very compelling program. And, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a complicated subject. So we, we worked really hard to try to, you know, explain the different levels of autonomy, to explain what the car needs to do in order to drive autonomously, to talk about both, you know, the promise and the perils of the technology. You know, and, and, I, and I, I like to think that, you know, whether people know a good deal about autonomous vehicles or know nothing at all, that they'll get something out of watching the show, which, you know, they can see, I think it's at least another month on uh, pbs.org slash Nova. Okay, excellent. So, again, pbs.org slash Nova is where they can see it. It's called Look Who's Driving. And, uh, Mike, I appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you. And thank you so much for your interest. I really appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.